July 8, 1999, Sydney, Ohio. Three young girls are found dead in the home of a man who believes he's being pursued by a satanic cult. The 30-year-old male in question had been arrested for indecent exposure more than once, and it was thought he was at it again. Only this time, he was paying young girls to watch him pleasure himself, and then they paid the ultimate price for their silence. But these three wouldn't be the only victims in his murderous wake. This is the story of Mike Hensley, sexual kinks and killer. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> and for all of my Slovakian friends. <laughs> Slovakia? <laughs> vitajte, vitajte, vitajte. There you go. Welcome, welcome Slovakia. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if we have any Slovakian We're listeners. glad you're here. <laughs> yeah. I it, can look and see. I can see where everybody's listening to the podcast. All right. I know. Let's check it out. I will check it out. Right. Wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. Mm-hmm. You can join the in-laws and outlaws. Yes. Today's case is actually from an in-law and outlaw and a listener mm-hmm. and a friend from Rob's hometown. We're talking about Rob's hometown today. I know. When I when you said that, I'm like, Sydney, Ohio? Little Sydney, Ohio. And when I was growing up there, it was 18,000, and it's grown to a massive 20,000. Yeah, it is 20,000. I have that in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. It's a rural town in Ohio, and this case was suggested by our friend, who's also an in-law and outlaw, Marty Milligan, yep. who just so happens to be the mayor of Sydney. And- she is the wife of my high school best friend. There you go. To this day, Tommy Milligan. I know. So love them both, Tommy and Marty. Hey. Shout out to Tommy and Marty. Yeah, because they do listen to the podcast. Yeah. Well, and she made this suggestion, I know. obviously. Yeah. You already said it's a population of 20,000 people. Right. Do you know who it's named after? Do you know where the name comes from? You know, I did I, my research. I did that. I did know that at one time, and I don't remember. It's named after the English poet Philip Sidney. Right. Yeah. Yep. Who, after William Shakespeare, is considered the greatest Elizabethan sonneteer. Wow. He was eventually shot in the thigh while fighting for the Protestant cause against the <laughs> Spanish, and he died of gangrene. Oh, jeez. At the age of 31. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. Wow. See, I do my I do my homework on this podcast. I wonder right? why they named it after him. I don't know. Yeah. That part I don't know. That is who it is mm. named after. Yeah. Okay. But we love Rob's little hometown. It's very sweet. Lots of great people there. Yep. And uh, I go back a lot. You do, and 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 Philip Sydney's not the only famous person from Sydney. Yes, um, Mr. Lauterbur. He um, he invented or co-invented the MRI. Oh, that's cool. Went to my high school. Well, there you. That's inter- That's very interesting. Yeah. And Rob Podorf is also from Sydney, Ohio. <laughs> yeah. It's so another famous person put from Put that there. in your pipe and mm-hmm. smoke it. The co-host of Hitch to Homicide. Yeah, exactly. 
Before we get started, I want to thank some sources. The Sydney Daily News, Murderpedia, the Fremont News Messenger, the Dayton Daily News, ThriveWorks, the Columbus Dispatch, the Guardian, the Toledo Blade, the Associated Press, the Lima News, and the Cincinnati Inquirer. Oh, wow. Okay. You ready? Well, let's do it. Lawrence Michael Hensley is born on April 1st, 1969 in Sydney, Ohio to Lawrence L. Hensley and Martha Napier Hensley. He's, he was an April Fool's baby. <laughs> he has three sisters, Sheila, Pamela, and Melissa, and a brother, Christopher. There's not much about his early life that I could locate, although I did find an incident from the Sydney Daily News in 1985 when a 15-year-old Mike of 3200 Sydney Freiburg Road. They always say where they live. Yeah. And his family lived there for a very long time because throughout his life, he moved back with his family, moved back with his parents, and they seem to still be there. And I actually don't know who he is. I mean, I was born earlier than 1969, a decade earlier. Well, and you were way gone by the time these crimes take place. I left for college in 1980, so, you know. And haven't looked back since. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But I love my hometown. But there's this incident when he's 15 years old and he's hit in the eye by another boy while they're at a party. It's a fight over a girl. Of course. (laughs) And when a deputy arrived at the residence of the party near Maplewood, there were only three boys there and none of them appeared to be drunk. This is this is all from the newspaper. (laughs) There was no evidence of beer cans. This according to the deputy. One of the boys, not the kid who lived at the house, admitted that he'd slugged Mike, but he said it was because Mike had been, quote, causing problems at the party. Mike, 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 Mike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but while Mike is fighting at parties elsewhere in Sydney, new life is coming into the world. On February 11th, 1983, Sherry Renee Kimbler is born in Sydney to parents Mark and Cheryl. She will have a sister, Lindsay, and a brother, Colby Lee. Not long after Sherry is born, another little girl comes into the world, Tasha Lynette Barrett. Tasha is born on March 9th, 1983 in Sydney, Ohio. Tasha's parents are Ellis and Glenda. She will have a sister, Fonda. So these two, Sherry and Tasha, they're cousins. And as small children, these two girls both lived on Water Street in Sydney. And they played together all the time. And they're cousins. They're Mm. first cousins. You know what's fun about this? Every time you mention a street, I... You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. Rob's picturing this in his mind. I am. I'm I'm painting a picture. Mm-hmm. In 1985, Mike is charged on November 25th at the age of 16 with public indecency. Oh. Now, there are not a lot of details about this because mm. he's a minor. Wow. Two months after this, Ricky, Mike Sell, and Rita have a daughter, Amy Nicole. She's born on January 31st, 1985 in Sydney, Ohio, and she's going to have a brother, Justin, and two sisters, Beth and Lisa. Now, meanwhile, Mike is supposed to be having a child of his own. It's April 1987. He and his then-girlfriend, Belinda, had a stillborn child. They named him Jordan Michael Hensley. But just a month later, in May 1987, Michael, who is 18 and working as a cook, according to the newspaper announcement, was wed to Belinda Sue Cathcart, also 18 years old. And Belinda worked for the Amos Press. She also graduated from Sydney High School. This marriage isn't going to last very long. And by October of 1987, just five months later, Belinda and Mike are getting a divorce. Oops. But his flashing ways, his indecent 
exposure ways have not stopped. <laughs> and on September 28th, 1988, Mike is charged with public indecency. Mike, keep it in your pants, dude. He cannot keep it in his pants. This is going to be a running theme. Jeez. Then sometime in 1989, Mike marries Jennifer Brodigam from Sydney. I hope I'm getting these names right. If I mispronounce one of these German names, yeah. lots of German names in Ohio, I apologize from the get-go. Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't know some of these people, so I'm not sure about You know everybody in Sydney. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's true. It seems that way when we go there. Yeah, hey, well. Rob. Hey, Rob. <laughs> hey, Rob. Hey, Rob. Yeah, everybody knows Rob. <laughs> but Mike marries Jennifer in Harlan, Kentucky. Apparently, Mike's got some family in Harlan. I also read that he was a huge University of Kentucky Wildcats fan. Really? Mm -hmm. Don't yeah. hold this. Don't yeah. hold that against us, Ohio <laughs> people, just because this guy likes the Kentucky Wildcats. Then February 28th, 1990, Jennifer and Mike have a little boy, Devin Michael James at Wilson Memorial Hospital. But by December 1990, Jennifer and Mike filed for divorce hmm. and she got temporary custody of their son and he had to pay. And this was in the newspaper. I don't know if it was a typo or not. He had to pay $15 a week in child support. Oh. That's not very much. God. I mean, okay. It's wow. 1990. Yeah, $15. I don't remember $15 going that far in 1990, but... <clears throat> That'll get you a meal at McDonald's. Maybe. Maybe. August 1990, Mike tells police that a woman has been harassing him by leaving nude photographs of herself and notes on his car while he's parked at General Housewares Corporation, where he works. He tells the police that he only knows the woman by her first name and that he met her a couple of years ago. Okay. Now, for somebody who likes to expose himself, he's going to the police because this woman is leaving nudes <laughs> on his truck. Okay, whatever. December 17th, 1990, Mike is just 21 years old. He's injured when his car hits a utility pole at 2 a.m. on a Saturday at Mason Road. And here's the story. He was driving east on Mason Road when a car behind him flashed their headlights. He slowed down and the car drove up beside him and a passenger and the other car threw a rock at him. Mike ducked and avoided being hit by the rock, but he swerved and lost control of the car and went off the right side of the road and hit the utility pole. Okay. It's 2 a.m. It's pretty inventive. It's very me. inventive. I don't know if there was alcohol involved or not or what actually was going on. Yeah. That's his story. He stuck to it. Okay. He's trapped in this car for 22 minutes. They had to use the jaws of life to get him out. Oh, wow. So it was a big wreck. It was a big wreck. Well, yeah, car meet utility pole. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. In May of 1991, Mike alleges that his karate instructor assaulted him. Mike's now 22 years old. Mike tells police that his instructor got upset when he caught one of his kicks and the instructor then hit, elbowed, kicked, and punched him. When the instructor's interviewed, he tells the police that the blows were, quote, accidental. <laughs> but Mike required hospitalization for a broken nose and two broken bones in his eye socket. Wow. This according to Mike himself. Oh, okay. So he's taking karate lessons, and who knows what actually happened, but this is kind of a running theme with him. Yeah. He's always got a story, and he there's always something going on with the law right. of Sydney, yeah. the Sydney PD. Sounds like he did something to the uh, karate instructor that made him just 
retaliate. Now, we have a son who has his black belt in karate. He got it when he was really little. It's all about like control and respect. And I just have a hard time seeing this going down just based on knowing what we know about Mike or what I should say I know about Mike at this point. Right. December of 1991, Judge John D. Schmidt grants the divorce between Mike and Jennifer. She retains custody of their child, and Mike had to pay $50 a week in child support. <laughs> this was a, this seems a little more appropriate, and his wages were to be withheld from Ikeeta Interior Systems. Okay. So maybe they're like, maybe he didn't pay the $15 a week, so now they're just taking his child support directly out of his paycheck. Right. She also accuses him of sexually molesting their one-year-old son. And although Mike denies these charges and a hearing happens before the Shelby County Magistrate, it all comes out that there was a ruling that there was no evidence that Mike had abused his son. But because of the accusations, all of Mike's visits with his little boy, Devin, are going to be supervised. Sure. Absolutely. August 1992, a man named Jeff... Himmelgarn, age 22, is charged with aggravated menacing after he makes threatening remarks to Mike. Hmm. Jeff came to Ullman's on Michigan Street, where oh, yeah. Mike worked, and told him he was going to, quote, blow his brains out, end quote. <laughs> Man. After the threat, apparently Jeff waited outside the store for him. But according to Jeff, he said, yeah, I went to the store, but I never threatened him. Mm-hmm. So this is another he said, she said. Sure. He's, he's, Mike has always got a story. Right. August 1994, Mike, along with two others, is charged with theft. The Speedway clerk at 1529 Michigan Street, her name is Marie Liss, she's age 20, her employers see a videotape that shows her just watching while several people are shoplifting, including Mike and a girl named Regina Bickle, who was 18. Mike is 25 and he's shoplifting. Wow. And here's what they took. I love this. Small town newspapers are the best. (laughs) They took two packages of sweet tarts. A bottle of soda, a pair of gloves, 25 packs of cigarettes, three T-shirts, and $13 of premium gasoline. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> go big or go home. Jeez. But he is held accountable for this. Good. After this, he's back to flashing his parts again. <laughs> August 30th, 1995, Mike goes to the Latiner Outlets on Vandemark Road in Sydney. He stands naked in a dressing room and then asks a female sales clerk to bring him a pair of pants for him to try on. Then he exposes himself to her while he's masturbating. So he's polishing the rifle and he's in this dressing room asking for a pair of pants. No, these are too small. Can you bring me another one? Well, I used to work retail, even in a men's store. And the protocol is that you hang them outside the door yeah. for the men. Well, of course. You hang them outside the door for the women as well. But, sure. you know, you can hang, you could hand them over the top of right, the dressing right. room. But the protocol is that you hang them outside the door if you're a female and they're a male. Gotcha. But he, she's bringing back pants and he's whipping, uh, whipping open the <laughs> curtain and there he is in all his glory. Wow. She calls the cops. When he's arrested, he tells the Sydney detectives that he has exposed himself like this more than 20 or 30 times, Jeez. and he wanted help to make it stop. Oh, wow. Quote, I'm not proud of what I've done, and I'm really ashamed of it, 
I'm sorry, but in a weird way, sort of, I'm glad I did it because my family has found out about the problem I was going through and they got me help, end quote. Wow. I don't think he got enough help. (laughs) I don't think think he ever got enough help. Yeah. November 1996, Mike is sentenced to 30 days in jail for public indecency and is fined $250 for exposing himself to a 15-year-old girl that he took boating. Jeez. Then again in 1997, he receives a public indecency conviction. He exposed himself to a female motorist while driving northbound on Interstate 75. Wow. Now, we drive northbound on Interstate 75 a lot to get to your hometown. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine if we're just like cruising along. I'm never going to be able to think of how, a stretch and of highway the same way again. Yeah. So I read this and I thought, how do you drive and expose yourself at the same? How do you do that? How is that possible? I, He's a better driver than I yeah. am because I got hands at two and 10 and I'm watching the road and no, he's he not. apparently he, is he, not. He's an Ohio driver. He is an Ohio driver. I can say that because you I'm from it, Ohio. You said it, not me. You said it, not me. <laughs> But a Wapakoneta woman told police that she tried to pass Mike's car and he exposed himself to her. Then he sped up his car with hers and like to match it until she drives through the highway median just to get away from it. So, okay, how did he expose himself? I'm asking the same question. Yeah, okay, whatever. He's driving. I mean, yeah, how? How is is this possible? Crouched in his seat or. Yeah. I don't know. Is he is he pressing it to the window? I, I mean, while he's driving, I, I mean, don't know. I don't know. Inquiring minds want to know. Yes, <laughs> Miss this woman from Wapakoneta. If you want to tell us how this happened, yeah, we're more that we are all ears. What's I want to know how again? it happened. Uh, I don't have her name. Okay, she probably didn't want her name yeah, in the paper. I mean, I God wouldn't. love her heart. Yeah. I wouldn't either. Yeah, exactly. But he had duct tape over his license plate, so <laughs> she couldn't even like say, "Here's the license plate." Oh, wow. But he was tracked down through a physical description. And I wrote in my notes, was it his face (laughs) that she was the physical description or something else? (laughs) She does give a description of him and his purple car, a 1995 purple Chevy Cavalier. When police catch up to Mike, he denies that it was him. Deny, deny, deny. Of course. But then he finally cracks and says, yeah, it was me. (laughs) Quote, I know I have a sexual disorder problem and I know I need help. Some true, honest help. Someone that will find out why I do this because deep down I don't want to do this. I have a lot going for me. End quote. Okay. So is he... It's Jekyll and Hyde. Is he asking for help? Did he get help? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Was he just feigning? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. He's been caught. So what he should do is say, I I know I'm bad. Right. I need help. Yeah. Take pity on me. Mike was fined $250 and had a 90-day jail sentence suspended following his 1997 conviction. He told investigators he served 16 days in Logan County Jail for an earlier indecency conviction. Jeez. Mike receives court-ordered counseling in Bell Fountain and Dittmer Hospital, which is a psychological care center in Miami County. Okay. After the 1995 arrest, he told police, quote, 
I checked myself into Dittmer Hospital, but withdrew after my ex-wife found out about my stay and called me to rub it in, end quote. Okay. So, I mean, what's... I- yeah. What's she calling and like, you're crazy. Yeah. Well, I think she knew that already. I don't know yeah. if this was wife one or wife two, because he's had two at this point. Yeah. Once again, it sounds like, you know, another excuse. Or was wife number two wanting to use him having psychological problems to maybe keep him away from their son? And to get $75 a week. Yeah. Yeah. Then Mike appears to change his ways. And then I wrote, or does he? Yeah. There are reports that Mike became entrenched in satanic worship. There is a ton of talk about this, but other than verbal reports, there seems to be no evidence of this. And I'm not saying that he wasn't into it, but whether he was involved in a satanic cult or not still remains to be seen. The one interview I read talked about his neighbors seeing lots of tattooed and pierced people coming in and out of his house, but that doesn't make anybody part of a satanic cult. Mm -mm. Still, I wanted to add all that information to the podcast. He does have demons. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And according to a lot of people, he was mentally ill. And Mike was weird, apart from wanting to polish the rifle to masturbate and make people watch. Mm -hmm. Because according to one of his past co-workers, he liked death and he liked parts. (laughs) Wow. According to a girl named Lisa, who once worked with him at a cleaning service, quote, he made us stop one night to look at roadkill on the road. He thought it was so fascinating. He started taking the parts out of the animal. He thought it would be neat to hurt somebody and watch them die, end quote. Whoa. Yeah. So he's got a sick mind. He's got a sick mind. Yeah. Well, he's not hurting anybody or anything. The animal's already dead on the road. But if he said he wanted to kill somebody and watch them die, I mean... Well, how many times have you been around somebody who's even talking about their child and they're like, I'm going to kill him? Yeah, but that's a little different from saying you want to watch them die. Yeah. Well, you know <laughs> wow. what? I don't, nothing against Lisa. I'm like her. I would be like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm, I'm not dealing with this. I'm tapping out. I'm tapping out. Yep. So maybe he couldn't control himself or his sexual addictions and he just became pissed at the world and turned to satanic worship. Okay. And he had this sexual addiction of exposing himself exhibitionist sex, which is a compulsion to display one's genitals in public. Hmm. Pulling out your penis and masturbating in front of someone who didn't consent to it is not a moment of weakness, an accident, or born out of confusion. Yeah, think? It's sexual assault. Yeah, exactly. Exhibitionism is a form of paraphilia. It's usually men and it's usually for unsuspecting strangers. They like the shock value Hmm. and they become sexually excited by it. And some of the risk factors for developing exhibitionistic disorder include past sexual abuse, antisocial personality disorder, alcohol or substance abuse, and interest in pedophilia. And the prevalence rate for exhibitionistic disorder is unknown, but occurs almost exclusively in men. Yeah. Wow. And he's studying Satanism as a part of this spiritual crisis, and he likes to take dead animals apart. Wow. So he's got he's got a lot going on in that lunkhead of his. Yeah. 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 But then in 1998, Mike starts going to church. Hmm. Also in 1998, on February 21st, Lynn Top, age 19 of North Star, Ohio, population 236, goes missing. She'd been out jogging near her home when she vanished. 
Shortly after Lynn goes missing, Mike Hensley calls the Dark County Sheriff's Department's 911 line and says, look it, Lynn's been kidnapped by a satanic cult. And the Dark County authorities trace the phone call to a payphone in Sydney, Ohio. Hmm. And the 911 calls, they're always recorded. Every 911 call you make, it's taped. So they send a copy of this tape to the Sydney Police Department and they say, hey, do you know who this might be? Like, And they're like, yeah. That's Mike Hensley. Oh, wow. Like they knew him by his, the sound of his voice. Wow. Or maybe the sound of his voice and the fact that he's talking about a satanic cult. I don't know which is more amazing, that they were able to identify him vocally just, you know, by his sound. Yeah. Or the fact that Sydney still had payphones back in 1998. <laughs> that's, what, that's what's really amazing to me. <laughs> well, true. That's very true. <laughs> Very true. Sorry, I had to interject. But I i mean, I just have this picture of the guys at the Sydney Police Department going, yeah, it's one of ours. Yeah. That's Mike again. There he you is. Know, there he is. There's our boy. So the Dark County Sheriff's Detective Bill Grice has a four hour long interview with Mike where he shares that he belonged to a satanic cult and that he was trying to leave said satanic cult. Mike had knowledge of important dates for devil worshipers, including special occasions for sexual rituals and bloodletting. Hmm. But when the sheriff's detectives take Mike on a ride through Sydney and Miami County to find the place where Mike said Lynn was being held, it became a wild goose chase. Hmm. The sheriff's detective said that Mike appeared to have a hard time determining what was real and what was not. Oh. And he got the impression that Mike Hensley was not in a cult. Okay. By the way, Lynn Topp's body was found on March 6th, 13 days after she disappeared. She's found on Timothy Rhoda Heifer's farm, 15 miles from her home. It's believed that Tim murdered Lynn and then killed himself. His body was found in a barn. It was a single gunshot wound to the head after her body had been found on his property. Okay. Now, while he's helping the police with a case he has nothing to do with, Lynn's, Lynn's case, he's still going to church. And I don't know if it was because of his next wife that he began going to church or if he started going to church and then he met her. But one year later, Mike is getting married. Again. Again. Mm. April 10th, 1999, Mike marries Julie K. Everett at the First Church of God. Julie was a 1987 graduate of Fairlawn High School. She and both of her parents were very involved at the First Church of God in Sydney. And after they're married, these two moved to 119 Queen Street in Sydney, Ohio. And Mike starts meeting with some of the people at church. It's a prayer group. He's getting into Bible studies. Okay. And his mentor is Brett Wildermuth. Oh, I actually know who that is. Brett was born on October 19th, 1961 in Sydney, Ohio, to parents Gene and Jake Wildermuth. He has two brothers, Greg and Kevin. He was a member of the U.S. Coast Guard, and he went to school to be an electrical engineer. On August 2nd, 1986, he married the love of his life, Sheila Sparklin. And these two would go on to have three beautiful children, Joel, Hannah, and Naomi. Mm. And not only was Brett really involved with the First Church of God, he was a member of the Board of Trustees and the church council, as well as a Sunday school teacher and a small group leader. He was also an engineer at S&M Controls in Sydney. He was a musician, and he loved to write music. He loved his wife and children so much that he actually wrote songs for all of them. Oh, he was a good guy. And I'll answer the question right away. Has Rob, my musician husband and <laughs> Emmy-nominated composer, ever written a song for me? And the answer is... 
Yes, I yes, have. Yes. yes, he has. He wrote it after he first met me and was enchanted by my beguiling ways. <laughs> I was. That's what I wrote in my notes. I was My schmitten. beguiling ways. I That's was right. <laughs> <laughs> but Brett is such a good guy and he wrote music for his family. Nice. So all around wonderful person who is helping Mike Hensley to get his wicked ways under control. Now, I'm not sure Mike has been totally honest with Brett, and I don't think he told him that he wanted to masturbate in front of people. I think he told him that he was wrestling with demons and that he had participated in devil worship in the past. But soon after Mike and Julie marry, they join a home Bible study led by Brett Wildermuth. Hmm. And I want to be clear. I didn't know Brett very well. I knew who he was because, like I said, he was a couple years uh, younger than me. Yeah, and you'd gone by the time all of this has happened. Yeah. You'd been long gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. There are about a dozen other people in this group, in this Bible study group. And by all accounts, the others and Brett think that Mike is doing really well. Mm. They're like, he's we've brought him into the fold. Yeah. He's doing much better. Right. Yeah, but with issues like that, they just don't magically disappear. They don't. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's the summer of 1999, and 14-year-old Amy Mikesell, 16-year-old Sherry Kimbler, and 16-year-old Tasha Barrett are enjoying their summer. And in this summer, both of the 16-year-old girls are working to make some money. Sherry was working part-time at a local ice cream shop called Chili Jillies. Oh my gosh, I used to stop there after high school every day. Well, that's where she was working, wow. and Tasha was working part-time at Odd Lots. Mm-hmm. These girls are saving their money for a few things. Tasha was saving money because she wanted to buy a car. But they were all planning to go to a four-day country concert in Fort Laramie, Ohio. Yeah, that's a big deal. And this concert seems to be a big deal. That's exactly what I wrote. I went to the website, and this year in 2023, Tim McGraw, Dirk Bentley, and Luke Bryan are all playing. It's one of the biggest outdoor country concerts in in the country, basically. And in 1999, this was the lineup. Alabama, Leonard Skinner, mm-hmm. Loretta Lynn, oh, yeah. Sammy Kershaw, John Michael Montgomery, who's from my area of town, Brad Paisley, Martina McBride, Charlie Daniels Band. Yep. And Achy Breaky himself, Billy Ray Cyrus, was playing. <laughs> party, uh, business in the front and party in the back. And business in the front, party in the back. <laughs> also from Kentucky. Yep. Yeah. But that's just a few of the people who were playing this Country Concert 99. That's yep. what it's called. Country Concert. And 16-year-old Sherry Kimbler is working this summer, and her friend and cousin, Tasha, is hanging out with her all the time. They're both 16 years old, and Sherry lives on Queen Street in Sydney, Ohio, just down the street from Mike and his new bride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 14-year-old Amy Mikesell is hanging out with her older sister, Lisa, who is 17 years old and good friends with both Sasha and Sherry who are more like sisters than cousins, it seems. All of these girls make a trip to the Cincinnati area that summer to go to the theme park, Kings Island, and they have fun. They're like just all about having fun that summer in 1999. Mm -hmm. At the time, Tasha was living with her aunt, Brenda Stiver. Then on the 4th of July, while at a party, someone mentions to Sherry's mother that Mike, who just lives down the street, was luring girls into his home with money. Oh, gee. So you can imagine it's a big get-together, 4th of July, you know, yeah, we know who your neighbors are. Right. Have you heard Mike is luring these girls into his house? Hmm. 
He was paying girls to watch him masturbate. Oh, gee. So Sherry's mom, Cheryl, confronts her daughter about this and says, okay, <laughs> Cherry, yeah. this is what I heard. Is it true? Right. Had he been paying girls, including you and your best friend? And she said, yes. Wow. She and her best friend and cousin Tasha had been paid 50 to to $100 each to watch him. Wow. And it's at this point that Sherry, who's only 16 years old, she pleads with her mom not to turn Mike in. Please don't turn him in. Mm. Sherry was afraid of what would happen to her or her mom if her mother outed him. Right. So he's got these girls afraid. He's got them scared. Sure. So Sherry promised her mother that she would not go back. Don't turn him in. We won't go back. That was kind of the agreement. Right. But she did go back. One report was that Mike had offered to pay Sherry, Tasha, and Amy up to $400 each to watch him pleasure himself. Good grief. And let me tell you, that kind of money will help you buy a new car. Yeah. And it's going to help you get to the Country Concert 99. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. In Fort Laramie, Ohio. Where's he getting that kind of money? Well, he has a job. I know, but... Jeez, I mean, if he was only paying fifty dollars a week for for child support, I mean, yeah. they, they base that on the amount of money that you're making. Yeah. Wow. Well, I did read in one account that he might have been dealing drugs. Mm. So that, that makes could sense. be, and that's obviously a cash business. So yeah. that could be makes where sense. it came from. Sure. Yeah. So it's just a bad. It's just a perfect storm. It was bad judgment and naivete on the part of the girls. They're only sixteen years sure. old. You know, you don't want to. I never want to put anything on these girls. Right. He was giving them money. They needed money. They wanted money to they do were things. Kids. And they're kids. Yeah. They're absolutely kids. Thursday, July eighth, nineteen ninety nine, at eleven a.m. It's believed that Mike called little fourteen year old Amy at her grandmother's house and then went there and picked her up. Hmm. That would be the last time anyone would see Amy again. Wow. 22-year-old Veronica Edgy, she went by Ronnie, and Ronnie, I totally apologize if I just messed up your last name, E-A-G-Y. She calls Mike Hensley at 1230 that day. Ronnie knows Mike from a janitorial service, and she calls him to collect $500 because Mike had promised that he would help her pay her rent that month. In exchange for what? I don't know. That was not in the paper. That was not in the report. But Mike picks up Ronnie and he brings her to his house. It's a white frame home, 119 Queen Street. Mm -hmm. While Ronnie is there, Sherry and Tasha cross the street at around 1.30. And Mike takes the two of them to the basement to play darts. Okay. Also around 1.30, Mike invited some friends to dinner before a softball game that night. A little after 1.30 p.m., Sherry's mother, Cheryl, comes home for lunch. Cheryl goes over to Mike's house. She knocks on the door and she asks him, have you seen Sherry? And Mike tells her that Sherry had been to his house to use the phone, but then she left in a gray Cadillac with a young man that her family knew. Now, this boy was not named, Okay, but it is false. She did not leave. Gotcha. She may have come over to use the phone because Mike had a telephone and Cheryl and Sherry did not have a phone in their house. Yeah. Now, it's at this point that Mike asks Cheryl if she wants to come in and have a drink. Hmm. And Cheryl says, no, thank you. I mean, it is 1.30 on a Tuesday. Cheryl has said that in that moment when she looked into Mike's eyes, she knew. She knew that he knew that she was aware of what he was doing and how he was paying the girls to watch him. Oh, wow. He knows I know. Right. Right. She could see it in his face. Right. 
After Cheryl leaves Mike's house, refusing the drink, she's in her own home and she hears what she believes to be gunfire at what she recalled to be 2.15 p.m. Wow. According to Ronnie, at approximately 2.25 p.m., Sherry, Tasha, and Mike burst out of the basement and into the living room. One of the girls is bleeding from her forehead and Mike is in a rage. He screams at Sherry and Tasha that they had told the police that he was selling LSD. Mm. So that's where, that's my only drug connection. I'm thinking maybe that's where the cash was coming from. Right, right. Then Mike picks up a shotgun and the girls start to cry and say, quote, don't shoot me. Please don't shoot me, end quote. He fires shots into both of them. Mm. Ronnie races down the stairs into the basement and hides in the closet behind the clothes that are hanging there. Mm. And my first thought was, Ronnie, get out of the house. Yeah, yeah. Get out of the house. Well, unless he was blocking the front door. Well, he shoots them in a front room, in a bedroom in the front. Gotcha. Not in the living room. So he forces them back into this bedroom, apparently, and then he shoots them. So I don't know if she couldn't get out the front door or the back door, but she goes to the basement and she hides. Mm. At 4.30, Julie, Mike's wife, shows up at the house and asks him, why are the garage windows all blacked out? Mm. And Mike tells her that members of this cult are coming to get them tonight and he doesn't want them to know that they're home. So we're back to the cult. Wow. Mike then tries to call a bunch of members of the First Church of God, and no one is home from work yet, so he starts leaving messages on people's answering machines. Then Julie calls Brett Wildermuth and tells him there'd been trouble at their house. Brett didn't know what trouble meant. He just knows that Mike's been fighting these demons and believes this satanic cult is after him. Mm-hmm. And she says, can we come over? And Mike loads the car with guns and covers them with blankets. He tells Julie it's for protection from the cult and that they must leave the house. Then he tells Julie to wait outside because he needs to go to the basement to test fire one of the guns. Oh, no. Uh. Mike goes downstairs and shoots several times through the closet door, tearing these gaping holes into the wood with Ronnie inside. Wow. She is hit. But she plays dead until she thinks it's safe. Gee whiz. She pretends to be dead. After, I, I, you know, you hear that story a lot. People pretend they're dead after the shot. I'm thinking, you've been, I've been shot. crying. Yeah. I, well, it's got to be just painful. So painful. So painful. Yeah. Yeah. Veronica is a, listen, she's a hero. I'm going to tell you something else about her a little bit later. Okay. Across from Veronica in the basement, dead and in the crawl space, is the body of 14-year-old Amy. Hmm. Nobody saw Amy. So did the girls go down in the basement to play darts and see Amy's body? Mm -hmm. It's just there are lots of unknowns here. Sure. And it's really unknown when Amy died because there were no witnesses to it. Gotcha. But how was she killed? She was stabbed and strangled. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that it happened before 1230 when Ronnie called Mike to come pick her up. If he lured her there under the pretense of paying her to watch him and somehow she wanted out, Or she told him that people knew that Sherry had told her mother what he was doing. And that's what led him to strangling and stabbing her and then placing her body in the crawl space. Right. But he's hiding her. At 510, Julie and Mike leave their home on Queen Street and make their way to Brett Wildermuth's home at 1161 Stevens Road. Julie convinces Mike to stop at the Wildermuth's house before they leave town. 
But they did stop and get something to eat, and then they gassed up this purple Chevy Cavalier. Okay. So he's killed these girls, but Mike's hungry. So he's stopping at, I think it was an A&W that they stopped at to get food and gas. Yeah. So it's a little bit after five, and just five minutes after that at 5.15, Veronica, who lives in Logan County, escapes the basement of Mike and Julie's house on Queen Street. She breaks out a window and climbs out. She's been shot in the knees and the shoulder. She is literally crawling across the lawn because she can't walk. She's been shot in the knees. Wow. So she's dragging herself across the lawn and the neighbors see her. Hmm. And at 5.15, the Sydney Police Department gets the very first call about the shooting on Queen Street. But an off-duty officer responds to the scene along with other on-duty officers. And Veronica tells the officers there are other girls in the house. There are more girls in the house. And I think what happened was the reason that an off-duty officer was there first, he lived on the street. He lived on Queen Street. I think that's that's correct. At 522, the Sydney Police Department enters the home on Queen Street and they find the bodies of Sherry Kimbler and Tasha Barrett. Sherry had been stabbed and then shot. The coroner's report would list the stabbing as the cause of her death. Tasha was beaten and had been shot at close range, both with a shotgun. Mm. And Tasha's is a shotgun to the chest. They're both in the front bedroom. So the police, they're like, holy cow. And they secure the crime scene. Yeah. This is a small town. Yeah, I mean, stuff like this just didn't happen. Just doesn't happen there. By 5.30, they're looking through the house for evidence, and what they find are 24 Molotov cocktails in his garage. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. And police believed he had planned on firebombing the house to destroy the bodies as evidence, Mm -hmm. but they also think he was going to firebomb churches So he could blame it all on a satanic cult. Wow. Now, by this time, they've called the Shelby County coroner, Dr. Philip Edwards, and the Shelby County prosecutor, James Stevenson, and they both arrive at the Queen Street house. Meanwhile, Mike and Julie arrive at Brett Wildermuth's home. But before they do, Brett's already been told by Julie something's happened. But Brett also gets a phone call from a friend who alerted him that something bad had happened Hmm. at Mike Hensley's house. Oh, really? And when they arrive, Julie wants Brett to give Mike some guidance. And Brett, who had been helping Mike banish all these demons, he's more than willing to have him and Julie come into his home to pray. Oh, Brett. And Brett was home alone. You know, he just walked into the house straight from work and his wife and children are not home. Right. Brett meets him at the door. And when he does, he says, I've heard about some, quote, trouble at your home. And Mike says he wants to go back and, quote, face those people. But Julie says he's not going anywhere. Brett tells them to come into the house so they can pray, and then they will go, they will drive into Sydney so he can go, quote, face those people. Right. But in the meantime, Mike's gone back to the car, and the two of them are kind of arguing about who's going to drive. When this is happening, there's a neighbor who's unbuckling a car seat and sees the two of them arguing in the driveway. And Mike has a gun in his hand, and he's walking behind Julie. So Julie doesn't know he's walking into the house with a gun. Mm. They decide to go back into the house to pray with Brett. She doesn't know he's bringing this pistol into the home. When they get inside, Brett starts to clear a table for them to pray, and that is when Mike shoots Brett in Mm. the back. Wow. And Julie says, what are you doing? And Mike replies to her question by firing 
two more shots at Brett as he's falling to the floor. Mike tells her we should leave. And Julie says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm calling 911. Yeah. And then she goes to Brett's side to see, you know, to try to comfort him or give him aid. And Mike walks out the door. Wow. At 5.43 p.m., Julie Hensley calls police to report the shooting of Brett Wildermuth after running to the neighbor's house. Mike has fled the scene in the purple 1995 Chevy Cavalier. She returned to Brett, who is dying, and I read that she held his hand and told him how sorry she was, but even in his final moments, Brett was trying to comfort Julie. Wow. What a guy. Yeah. Wow. What a guy. No idea any of this happened. Police arrive a few minutes later at Brett's home, and they find Brett in the living room. He's dead. This is when Julie is taken into protective custody, and they secure a second crime scene for the day. Jeez. Now, these guys probably don't see this much action in a year. No. And it's all happening in one day. Before the clock strikes 6 p.m., the manhunt for Mike Hensley is in full swing. The Sydney Police Department and the Shelby County Sheriff's Office are working together, and the WHIO-TV Channel 7 helicopter is out looking for the purple car. Wow. But Mike has disappeared. Hmm. A half hour later at 6.30 p.m., the Piqua Police Department tactical team shows up on Queen Street. And two hours later, the coroner leaves Queen Street and heads over to Brett Wildermuth's home. Piqua is another small town that's just outside of Sydney. Yeah, it's probably about 20 minutes away. So the point I want to make is that all of these police departments, including the television station, they're working together. Oh, yeah. They're really trying to find him. Meanwhile, Amy Mikesell's parents can't find her. And the police haven't found her either because Amy was supposed to be with Sherry and Tasha, and they all had plans to go to the country concert 99. So police continue to tell the Mikesells, Amy's not in the house. Hmm. They're like, we're afraid Amy's in there. They're like, we've searched it. Amy's not in the house. But then sometime between 10 and 11 p.m., the body of Amy is found in a crawl space in the basement. Wow. As I'd already told you, she'd been stabbed and strangled. And by midnight, all the bodies have made it to the morgue at the Montgomery County Coroner's Office for autopsies. Wow. There are four bodies. Jeez. Through the night, 30 of Sydney's police officers search the Queen Street house for more evidence, and they... They're also out looking for Mike, and he is gone. And how they can't find that purple car from the air yeah. is just beyond me. But all I can say is, by the time they like get the helicopter and everything's happening, sure. it's getting dark. Yeah, It is summertime, so maybe it's not as dark as we would think, right. because it's July, right. but it's getting dark. Right. And a purple car at night is hard to see. Yeah. It's like finding a black car at night. Yeah. yeah. By Friday morning, the warrants for... Mike's arrest have been issued. Mike is charged with four counts of aggravated murder. That Friday morning, the Butler County Sheriff's Office's helicopter shows up to look for Mike. And by that afternoon, the chief of police for Sydney, Stephen Wherley, releases the names of the girls. Now, I have a hard time believing that everybody didn't already know who the girls were because oh, it's a small town. Yeah, yeah. But he waits until the next day. Sure. Like he's supposed to. Right. Gives his statement. Right. That same afternoon, while the police chief is holding his press conference, Mike has made his way to Kentucky. Oh, wow. To London, Kentucky, which is in the southern area. Yeah. And the search shifts to Kentucky, where Mike has relatives in Harlan County. 
His car was even spotted in the parking lot of a Dalton, Georgia motel. Hmm. So he's kind of all over the place, but they know he's in London, Kentucky because he used an ATM machine. Ah. By Sunday, the town of Sydney is mourning first the death of Brett Wildermuth. Visitation for his funeral is held at the First Church of God. Other than what Julie's told the police, they don't have much to go on other than the fact that Brett knew Mike had killed someone and the police were at his house. Hmm. Now, by Monday, tons of people have called the tip line to say that they've seen Mike or his purple car. And on this same day, the funeral is held for Brett and the visitation is held for the cousins, Sherry Kimbler and Tasha Barrett. Now, on Tuesday night, July 13th, five days after Mike murders three girls and his church friend, he is back in town. What? He comes back. Back to the scene of the crime. Comes home. Wow. At 2.50 a.m., a man from Anna, Ohio, which is just north of Sydney, and his wife are minding their own business, driving on I-75, when suddenly the driver's side window is shattered. Two shots were fired into their car. Jeez. It hit 47-year-old Aaron Nelson in the stomach and in the arm. He pulls off the road to a save-a-ton on State Route 119, where they call the police for help. So he's been shot and he's driving. Gee whiz. Is that crazy or what? Guy's out of control. Not long after this, Mike shows up at the home of fellow church member and Bible study group, John Bruce. It's about three in the morning. He's banging on the door. He tells Bruce to let him in. And Bruce is like, no way. (laughs) You're not coming in my house. Nobody's home. Nobody's home. And he tells his wife and children, hide, get out, stay down. I even read one account where the wife had the children like they were crawling on their hands and knees. So they were below the windows. His wife calls 911 to say, this is Kathy Bruce, and I think Mike Kinsley is at my house. There was a shot fired outside, and my doorbell rang twice. Oh, my God. I heard a shot fired, and my husband yelled, Mike, please leave our house, and now I don't know where my husband is, end quote. Oh, no. I also read that Mike and Kathy both picked up the phone at the same time. And we're trying to call 911. She eventually called on her cell phone, but it was like a mass confusion. He did shoot through the door. Mike fires a shot through the front door, about four feet from the bottom of the front door. Bruce is not injured, but then he also calls 911 to tell them, guess who's back in town? Yeah. And the police cannot believe that he came back to Sydney. Yeah, I can't believe it either. And when Mike calls 911, he says, quote, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's definitely him. He killed Brett. He's going to kill somebody, end quote. Wow. So he's afraid. I mean, he knows. Well, yeah. He had just come from the funeral of his friend, Brett. Yeah. 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 Wow. So when they're getting the 911 call about Mike Bruce and the shooting in his house, they're also getting notification from their friends in Anna that Aaron Wilson's been shot while driving on I-75. So once again, it's just chaos chaos on top of chaos. Then at 3.12 a.m., Sydney police officer Bill Shoemaker spots Mike and his purple car on 4th Avenue by the AutoView Drive-In Theater. Oh, yeah. He's changed the license plate from Ohio to Illinois, but Officer Shoemaker's like, it's the Purple Cavalier, it's him. And he starts to follow him. 
and Mike speeds and tries to elude the police. This is when Mike enters the parking lot of the Speedway gas station on Ohio 47, just off Interstate 75 in Sydney. It's a place you and I have stopped many times. Yeah, it's where I get gas every time I leave Every Sydney. time we leave town, we stop at this Speedway. Yeah. Mike pulls into the Speedway gas station. He leaves his car running. He jumps from this purple car. He goes into the Speedway. And with him is a Tech 9 handgun, which mm. is a semi-automatic weapon. Yeah. It's a gun that's been associated with organized crime, street gangs, and mass shootings in the 90s. Most notably, this is the gun that was used in the Columbine High School Massacre. Tech 9s. It's, he's got some power. He's got some firepower oh, with yeah. him. One person, a man inside the store who's there, you know, getting gas or whatever, he sees kind of what's happening and he is out. He's out the front door. I don't need any Doritos. Yeah. The clerk, (laughs) Jenny Rader, barricades herself in the back office. She calls 911. But two unlucky souls who are just trying to get some gas or a Red Bull are stuck. Hmm. And they are William Lease and Michael R. Brown. He takes them both hostage. Oh, no. The police, deputies, and members of the Piqua Post of the Ohio Highway Patrol, that's the state police in Ohio, Mm -hmm. are on the scene quickly, just before the SWAT team from Sydney and Shelby County arrived. Did you know Sydney had a SWAT team? I had no idea. Sydney had a SWAT team, has a SWAT team. Wow. It's 3.15 a.m., and the man that they know has murdered four people now has three hostages with a gun that they know means business. Wow. This is this is high pressure stuff. Yeah. About 30 minutes later at 338, negotiator Dave Clark of the Sydney Police Department makes contact with Mike in the Speedway. He calls the phone in the Speedway. And these two are going to talk off and on for more than an hour. Okay. Mike was making threats to the two guys who were in there, his hostages, and was talking about pipe bombs. Ooh, gee. At 4.44, Mike agreed to let the two hostages go. He didn't let the the girl in the back go. I don't know how that, I don't know how that went down. I mean, she's barricaded yeah. herself, on, obviously, into the manager's office. I'm sure that's where the, the safe is. I'd be hiding in the safe. I would be too. <laughs> and five minutes later, Mike Hensley, after he lets these two guys go, this man who has murdered three girls, he's injured another, he killed his church friend, and now he's shot at a second innocent person on the interstate. He walks out with his hands up wearing only jorts and tennis shoes. Jeez. And if you don't know what a jort is, that's a jean short. Yeah. Welcome to the South. <laughs> but police, after seeing all the Molotov cocktails in his house and all his chit-chat about pipe bombs, they're afraid that the Purple Cavalier might be full of his homemade bombs. Sure. So they still have the area sealed off right. until they can safely tow the car and investigate. And I read where there were farmers' tractor trailers helping out to like block off the streets oh, to really? have like a whole area around it. This community rallied, yeah, really rallied. Yep. Mike surrendered at 5 a.m. in the morning. Five hours later at 10 a.m., the funerals for Sherry Kimbler and Tasha Barrett are held. Jeez. I want to talk about the girls for a second. Of course. Sherry Kimbler attended Versailles High School as a freshman, but returned to Sydney City Schools in October as a sophomore. And according to her school counselor, she was a, quote, very conscientious student who always had a smile on her face, end quote. Mm. Sherry planned to attend Upper Valley Joint Vocational School and wanted to go into cosmetology or graphic arts. Mm. Tasha Barrett had attended Sydney High School sporadically, 
according to Johnson, and was being homeschooled as a junior. And I read where her mother said that Tasha suffered from asthma. She was sick a lot. Yeah, okay. And so she could never make it to school all the time. She couldn't do the things that other kids could do. Sure. And so because she was in and out so much, she was homeschooled. But she was trying to make a go of it to go back to regular high school. Gotcha. Amy Mikesell was a seventh grader at Ridgeview Middle School. She was a seventh grade kid. Jeez. Seventh grade. Wow. She loved to sing karaoke, play laser tag, and she wanted to become a country singer like oh. Leanne Rhymes, oh. which oh. would make sense why she wanted to go to the country sure. concert 99. Absolutely. Yeah. Mike Kinsley was emotionless when he was arraigned on July 13th, the same day he surrendered. His bond was set at $1 million, and the grand jury was set to meet two days later, and the county prosecutor told the media that they were considering the death penalty. Good. A year later, in March of 2000, Mike Kinsley steps into court to face the families of his victims. He was charged with murdering Sherry, Tasha, and Amy at his home. And while sobbing and trembling, he apologized to the victims' families. Wah. Quote, I'm sorry for taking your daughter's lives. So sorry for doing what I did, end quote. And according to his defense attorney, Court Gatterdam, the combination of his spiritual problems and his sexual addiction was too overpowering for him. Even though no one seems to know exactly what happened that day, prosecutors think that Mike was involved in activities with some of the girls that could have led to criminal charges, and he was concerned about the possible ramifications of that information being disclosed. So he's always afraid that the girls are going to tell on him that he was paying them to watch him masturbate. Yeah. So he killed them. Wow. As for Brett, well, Brett knew that he was a killer. Right. So when he showed up there, he had to get rid of him too. Yeah. Mike Hensley would not receive the death penalty. He didn't even go to court. He pled guilty to all the charges, aggravated murder, attempted aggravated murder, and kidnapping, all of it, and received a life sentence to avoid a possible death penalty. Hmm. Mark Kimbler, Sherry's dad, called the plea bargain a good decision. He said it would, quote, have taken at least 10 years for Hensley to get the death penalty. He took my daughter's life. He should have lost his, but we have to settle for this, end right. quote. Yep. So Mike Hensley goes to the Toledo Correctional Institution to spend the rest of his days. But that is not where this story ends. Hmm. At the end of September 2012, Bradley Hamlin, age 24, was serving a five-year sentence for burglary when he was found unconscious in Mike Hensley's cell at the Toledo Correctional Institution. Uh, no. He had been restrained and he had been strangled. Bradley Hamlin would die two days later. There'd been a disagreement between Bradley and Mike Hensley and maybe a couple more inmates. Mike would be indicted for the murder in 2013, and he was transferred from Toledo to the Ohio State Penitentiary in Youngstown, Ohio. Okay. So he's sorry. He's weeping. He's so <laughs> sad that all of these things happen. He's, you know, he writes letters to Brett's wife saying, you guys were always so good to me. Whatever. And then he gets in jail and he kills another inmate. Yeah. Then in June of 2015, Mike is diagnosed with cancer. 
After he receives the news, he asks to meet with the prison chaplain on June 16th to discuss whether his decision to turn down medical treatment was the same as committing suicide. Hmm. And the chaplain told Mike that, no, the decision did not fit a, quote, biblical definition of suicide. Right. It was then that the chaplain asked Mike if he was thinking about taking his own life. You know, you're asking me about this. Sure, are you sure. are you thinking of doing something desperate? To which Mike replied, quote, no chap, you know better than to think that or even ask me a question like that, <laughs> end quote. Mike Hensley was found hanging by a sheet oh. tied to an air vent in his cell at the Ohio State Penitentiary on the morning of June 21st. Wow. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. Yeah. A patrol report said that a suicide note was found in the cell. Oh, do, do we know what it said? We don't know what it said. Gotcha. I have no idea what it said. Okay. I do want to tell you that a family member who asked to remain anonymous said that Mike did actually break ties in October of 1998 before the murders with a satanic group based in neighboring Logan County, which is where he worked. Uh-huh. Quote, he was trying to get away from the occult, end quote. Gotcha. In August of 1998, cult members ran Mike Hensley's car off the road and beat him, according to this anonymous family member. They made crank calls to his house, they slashed his tires, and they harassed him at work. Hmm. Now, it's hard to know where the real story lies. Was he mentally ill? Right. I think so. Right. He wrote to authorities telling them he was the killer in the Greg Trapp murder in 1999 and involved in the disappearance of a nine-year-old named Erica Baker, also in 99. Both claims were dismissed and others have been held accountable. Hmm. So he's taking credit for these murders that he's not any part of. Right. Was he a killer? Yes. Mm-hmm. Was he a sexual deviant? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And when he got cornered by these young girls, he lashed out. And murdered them. Right. Did he have remorse for what he did? Well, I think he does when the the occasion suits him. Sure. Because, you know, he writes all the apology letters and he cries in court. But then he murders an inmate in prison. Yeah. What stands out to me is that when he's arrested for indecent exposure, he begs the police to help him. Sure. That he doesn't want to be that way. Right. So was it a cry for help and nobody knew what to do with him mm-hmm. and they didn't know how to treat him because he did check himself into Bell Fountain Hospital. Right. That wasn't the only psychiatric facility he was in. Mm. Or was it just all a ploy? Was it all for sympathy? Did right. he just get in there and tell them exactly what they wanted to hear? He seemed like a good actor. Yeah, well, we're never going to know. Right. Our hearts do go out to all the families in Sydney whose lives were changed that day, including Mike's family. Yeah. There are no winners in these cases. We always say this. There are no winners. Even though he's gone, even though he went to jail, none of these girls will ever be back. Right. Yeah, there are no winners in these cases. No, never is. Never is. But that is the story of Mike Hensley. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. Have you read any good books lately? Or have you listened to any good books? All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. 
A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. Wow. I uh, I had I know. no idea any of this happened in my little town. I know. Yeah, I was I living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. So obviously I didn't have, other than my best friend Tommy, I didn't have any contact with what was going on. So mm-hmm. that's crazy. You know, one of the things I forgot to tell you guys about, and I will quickly tell you this story. Remember I said that Veronica, the girl who was crawling out of the house, was kind of a hero. Yeah. When they arraigned him, she came in via ambulance from the hospital on a gurney and was wheeled into the courthouse so she could tell the grand jury exactly what happened. Wow. That would pretty much seal your fate. I mean, yeah, but I mean, can you imagine? I mean, she's been in pain. She's watched all this happen. And then she's crawled across the yard. And now she's like on a gurney, but in the courthouse because she was going to tell her story. Jeez. Amazing. 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 Let's let's lighten it up a little bit. Yes. Let's do that. (laughs) Let's do a, a little bless your heart. Okay, this week's Bless Your Heart is from an In-Laws and Outlaws group member, Joy Knapp. Thank you, Joy. Yeah, so, she filled out the form. Yeah, so thank you, Joy, for making my life just a little bit easier. All right, here we go. San Rafael, California. Oh, California. Yep. A Northern California burglar returned to the scene of the crime this weekend after he forgot his keys inside a donut company's corporate office. <laughs> So many questions already right off the bat. Yeah, the thief stole some petty cash from Johnny Donut's office in the San Francisco Bay Area on Saturday night, police said. And I I keep thinking, it sounds like it should be from Brooklyn. Johnny Donuts. Yo, Johnny Donuts. Johnny Donuts. I love a good donut, people. Chris loves a good donut. Now, in another twist, he also grabbed the keys to a bakery vehicle. But didn't steal the vehicle itself. So, so yeah. he didn't know which keys were his? I don't. He just took keys? Yeah, who, who can make sense of any of these no, morons? right. Did he steal any donuts? <laughs> well, San, San Rafael police are seeking the public's help to identify the burglar who used an unknown tool to manipulate the office's doorknob oh, and okay. get inside around 10 p.m., according to Lieutenant Dan Fink. Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> he jimmied the lock. Yeah. The crime was reported to police on Monday. Now, surveillance video shows the man moving between the office and a back storage area where he pried open a filing cabinet, Fink said. He wasn't eating donuts. No, no. He's stupid. No, no. The lieutenant said the thief took a bag with an unknown amount of cash. Quote, part of the investigating is to find out why the specific business was targeted, he said. Craig Blum, or Bloom, I'm not sure. I apologize if I mispronounce your name, Craig, founder of Johnny Donuts, said his company plans to deliver a few dozen donuts to the San Rafael police officers, quote, who came to our aid to ensure that we can continue serving our community handcrafted donuts without 
interruption. Police officers and donuts. (laughs) So who would have ever thought of that being a good combination? Although they're not supposed to accept anything. I know. Police officers will tell you, I can't take anything. I can't take it. Yeah. Quote, it was an unfortunate incident, but we're glad no donuts or team members were harmed, Bloom said. Yeah, don't (laughs) hurt the donuts. And I'll end this one with this. Sometimes even the thought of a donut makes you do crazy things. Yes, <laughs> it does. Yeah. I used to let myself have two Krispy Kreme donuts on my birthday every year. Well, you know, Charlotte is the home of Krispy Kreme. I know. And now I have celiac disease and I can't mm. eat any Krispy yeah, Kreme donuts. But they do make they do make gluten-free donuts and they're, they're pretty good. Yeah. Rob wouldn't eat them. Rob eats my gluten-free stuff and is like... <laughs> <laughs> After I get done, I go eat a cardboard box. No, okay. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Well, thank you, Joy. Yeah, Joy. And if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, just go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu. Yep. You can send it to us. You can also suggest a case. We're just all filled with like people who suggested a case. I love it. And a bless your heart today. Absolutely. It's great. I know. That's all we have this week. Oh, side note. Thank you to everybody who wished me a happy birthday. Yes. We got we got ready to come into the studio today, and Rob goes, you need to thank everybody for all those birthday yeah, wishes. And absolutely. I was like, you're right, I do. <laughs> I try not to think about my birthday too much anymore. <laughs> but yes, thank you very much for the birthday wishes. It was much appreciated. Yes. That's my husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. We'll see you next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all. Bye.